Welcome everyone to the Dining Room Table Podcast, a weekly conversation that addresses taboos of the black community. We emphasize vulnerability, transparency, and authenticity to change the narrative and stigma of self-expression in our community. I'm your host, Miranda X, and this week I'm joined by J.R. Rivera, and we're going to discuss the responsibility of black male educators in the school system. Are black male educators only utilized and respected as disciplinarians and teachers in their school? Do black educators have a moral and cultural obligation to teach culturally relevant education to their students? And do black educators have the responsibility to be more than just a teacher to black students? Let's talk about it. Before I begin, I want to welcome my guest, JR, to the podcast. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing excellent. Great to be on. I'm glad to have you. Is there anything exciting going on in your life right now? You got to tell us about it. Oh, man, I'm traveling the country, speaking to educators right now, um, getting ready to go on tour with Teach Your Heart Out, and I'll be in uh, Mm. Antonio, San Diego, and then Canada with them. And I have some other PDs around the city and different towns that I'll be uh, speaking at. So excited to just empower these educators and really help the students um, speaking at churches. Uh, I just was awarded at a huge um, youth night uh, for a back to school event. So that was really cool. Um, So, yeah, just excited about life and being able to impact Oh, look at God. God is good. Um, I'm happy to hear that. Um, can you actually just tell us, um, tell the listeners more about yourself? Where are you from? What do you do? What's the name of your business? All that good stuff. All right. So I'm J.R. Rivera. Um, I'm just an average man trying to do extraordinary things with my gifts. Um, my gifts are speaking, uh, teaching, and reaching the youth and the educational system. So how I go about doing that is on a daily, I post motivational things to my social media and I try to pump out positivity so that the children and the educators can go into the classroom with a different mindset and continuously reminding them of their why and their purpose for being in there. And that is what um, actually yielded me the platform with BET of being the most inspiring Instagram in the United States in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I transitioned from the classroom to full-time speaking. I'm also an author. I have a book that's called What's Eating Up Your Time. It's a self-help book, and it's focused on time management and creating a purpose-driven routine. It's adopted by a couple of schools, um, and it's very useful for even young adults to go in there and just break down that 168 hours that we all get in a week, whether you're a bum or a billionaire, you only get one day. <laughs> so um, in my business, the name of my business is Mile Mindset. And, you know, I think that speaks for itself, just going the extra mile. And um, the acronym MILE stands for My Inspiration Lifts Everyone. Mm. Thank you for that. And so I know you do a lot of motivating others, but as of right now, what are some challenges that you face and how do you get through them? Um, the challenges that I face is trying to find the right um, personal assistant. So all the listeners out there, if you're a great personal assistant or want to be a personal assistant, send your resume. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the challenges is finding people that vibrate on the same level. Um, I'm real big on energy and faith and understanding that, you know, you have to get on a certain vibrational frequency to attract certain things and you should never fall out of the frequency of love. So just right. trying to, you know, consistently um, balance my life to where I'm in that uh, frequency of love uh, is probably, you know, challenging at times, but most of the times it's pretty smooth. I have two kids that keep me, you know, really going in that direction. Mm. And so what I what I want to get started off with, I kind of want to know. Who was JR before becoming the educator and the motivational speaker? Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and your childhood? Um, did the younger you ever envision the life that you have now? Um, yes. And you can take all- your time, too. <laughs> no problem. Um, yes, I, I was always very ambitious from a young age. So at four years old, I watched the 
police and federal agents come into my house and uh, pretty much take everything that we had. My father was a kingpin drug dealer, and mm. he went to prison for a total of 17 years. Um, but my father was also a devoted, great athlete growing up. I happened to be born um, when my father was a senior in high school. So he chose trying to feed his family um, through selling drugs mm-hmm. rather than going to school, playing ball, and trying to wait it out and struggle. So for me, I understood that the process early on was going to have some struggle in it. And I um, really adapted to playing sports and using that to be my outlet of being around other males and getting those male figures that I needed in my life to help me transform and conform to what a black man should be. Um, Also, my faith was very strong and my mother was very strong. So those things helped me push myself, um, so to speak, past what statistics said I was supposed to be. So I ended up graduating high school, 4.13 GPA. My mother barely graduated high school. My father, um, like I told you, he graduated high school, but ended up in prison 17 years. Um, so, you know, I'm a person that there's, there's no excuses, only execution. And if you continue to make excuses, you'll never be able to execute on what your goals and your dreams are. So I just continue to focus on my goals and dreams early on. I ended up getting a scholarship playing football at Florida Atlantic University have my trials and tribulations as far as trying to understand and navigate the space of being a first generation graduate, the first one in my family Mm -hmm. to uh, go to college. So that was a little bit challenging. And then the identity crisis hit when I tried out for the NFL, didn't make it. And the Jersey was no longer on my back. And I was trying to figure out who I was. And I just knew that I wanted to always help kids. So my, ex-wife and also my uh, best friend both told me that I should probably teach and coach football mm-hmm. and in doing so when I finally did it because first I I tried everything I tried out for the NFL I tried acting modeling I was doing all of that stuff mm-hmm. I moved to LA for like two and a half weeks and then there was a little earthquake and I'm like I'm out of there oh <laughs> <laughs> that's funny I'm from LA so that's funny to hear you oh, say that man, I, I, y'all can have those earthquakes. I'm, I'm, I need to know what's coming, the hurricanes, all that. I can move, but the earthquake, I can do that. So, oh, no. Yeah, I had to get out of there. But, <laughs> you know, going through that is what put me into the classroom. And in the classroom is where I saw that I could be very effective with mm-hmm. changing the trajectory of young people's lives and definitely young black males. And I knew that statistically the odds were always against them. And I had been going to prisons, obviously, to visit my father and seeing, you know, the incarceration rate was huge in the Mm -hmm. black and brown community. So (laughs) early on, I always wondered how come we always succumb to those circumstances when there are other options. And I just felt like if I could expose those young people to other options early on and help them with their education, that they have a better chance of becoming something successful. So with that, I was coaching and teaching, and then I ended up trying out for a professional indoor football team. I made the team. I played for three years, won the championship. And one day I was talking to my best friend, and he was like, man, you could tell stories better than anybody I ever met. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, like, nobody's paying me to tell stories. Like, I'm not Mr. Rogers. Right. So, <laughs> he's like, no, like, people are coming in. He played in the NFL for 10 years. And he was like, people are coming in to our team to talk to us, and they're paying them thousands of dollars. And I'm like, what? So I began to hone in on my gift of speaking and then my other gift of teaching. And I kind of meshed those two together, found a mentor, and – started to just learn and build um, consistently on that gift. I posted motivational videos for two and a half years straight without missing a day. So that really got my um, footing, so to speak, on social media and people really Mm -hmm. recognize. So I want to ask you this before I really ask you about Mm -hmm. your um, educator experience and your um, speaking experience. Um, When you talk about your dad and how he was in jail um, for 17 years, did you have any resentment towards your father 
as a child? Uh-huh. Did you understand um, what was going on? I mean, till this day, I still go into prisons and I use his story. So I think it actually motivated me. to be. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds crazy, but it actually motivated me. And I knew that my father's intentions was good. Right. So I knew he had good intentions, but he made bad decisions. That's actually what I go in and speak on to, you know, at risk or prison or, you know, juvenile correctional facilities, because I know that had my dad had the same drive and put it in real estate or something else, right. so he would have been very successful and he would have been there. So I didn't have real resentment. You know, sometimes I wish that, you know, he could be at the game and just see me perform instead of me having to articulate, you know, what happened in the game and how I played and those types of things. But I mean, I don't think I really had resentment. It was more of uh, a gap, so to speak, in my life where, you know, I just wanted him to be a part of what was going on. So as as a father currently, what lessons um, maybe that your father taught you or did not teach you that you want to make sure that you implement in your children's lives now? Um, just just making sure that you're you're always there for those important moments, time, and understanding that time is more important than money. I mean, I actually wrote that in my book, like mm-hmm. uh, on the basis of this topic and understanding that. You know, it's cool to have a million dollars. My father was a millionaire as mm-hmm. a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that all got taken away in a blink of an eye, and then he was gone as well. So just understanding that, you know, it's all right to, to struggle as long as you have the ones that you love close to you and, uh, you know, rooting you on to just keep striving and keep pushing and quitting is never an option. Like, th- that would really be what I would instill in my children and what I do today. Mm. And I actually, um, your, your, your life story actually mirrors mine. Um, my father was also, um, similar to yours. He was a drug dealer and I think he was gone for about 12 years of my life, but, um, I actually had a little bit of resentment towards my father. However, I had the opportunity to really um, do some personal development, um, I would say. Um, I really I had made a promise to myself that um, if I wanted to love people a certain way that I would have to look within myself um, and re- really forgive all those people who hurt me. And I actually, when you get the chance, I actually had an opportunity to have my dad on a podcast and for him to um, speak his truth, right? And so that was amazing. But what, um, but um, I, I was in the game of really, um, I guess that motivational friend, really trying to be there for women and be a role model to um, other women, um, peers and young women. But I felt like I couldn't really do that without fully healing. And so I want to ask you, um, did you go through your own process and what did that process specifically look like as a person who understand the impact that you could have made in education? Um, did you have your own process of healing or personal development to go through before you became a teacher? Um, I mean, understanding like from your story, you know, just knowing that you can't pour from an empty cup and you were drained and, you know, you needed to put something in that cup before you started to pour out into the youth. So for me, um, I think I was going through a a good relationship with my ex-wife and getting married and you know, all of the good things that, you know, come with that. So my spirituality was what really, like, I would say transformed and healed whatever I didn't have healed mm-hmm. um, at that time. So at that time, you know, that's when I really started to fall in love with the word of God and going to church and just, you know, trying to align my life with what his word said. And that really was helping me to become someone that could pour out into others mm. so just just having a routine I would say that allowed me to receive first before that I could pour into others and it's something that I still do now now I just know a little bit more about as you spoke of the, the internal um, mm-hmm. mirror that you need to have going on understanding that you can't expect someone to love you unless you're giving love you know we receive whatever we give out you Mm -hmm. know we attract whatever we are so 
just just understanding that and you know i started reading books as i got like my second or third year as an educator i really started to you know read different things like i started with like a 365 um positive words or something Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. every day and uh that kind of helped me you know understand each day setting the tone for my day and expecting great things to happen for me so i would say that that kind of routine is what really propelled me into the position where i could help somebody else that's great um I was, so I'm new to Georgia, uh, two years, I moved to Georgia from LA, and one thing that I really loved about Atlanta was the black folks, um, I'm not sure, where are you from, um, what city? Fort Myers, Florida. Oh, are, are, where you, where, are there a lot of black folks there? Um, there's a little pocket of them. Okay, okay, <laughs> well, here, here in Atlanta, there's like, I'm like, oh my goodness, like, I'm in like the black Mecca is so many black yeah. people and I was raised in the area where I'm raised around Latinos. And so right. I love my Mexicans, by the way, love them. Um, we, we have a lot of Mexicans in um, our neighborhood and, um, but that also impacted my school experience because I never had black professionals, right? And so um, I think that the only time I had a black teacher was in kindergarten and then I probably, I had a black male teacher once, but other than that, I never saw a black teacher until I got to college. And so I went through about 12 years of education before I ever got to really see um, representation of um, someone that looked like me. And so I kind of want to know what inspired you um, to become an educator and not only to become an educator, but to teach math specifically. Well, early on, I went through the same experience, so I mm-hmm. never had a black male teacher either, mm. um, all the way growing up. And I stayed in Fort Myers and Tampa, um, Florida. I stayed in Tampa, Florida for like five years. So um, just understanding that if there's none, sometimes you got to be first. Right. And uh, when it came to going into the school system, math just always came easier for me because it's only one answer. <laughs> you know, I was still, I don't, I don't it's right around. Yeah, it's, it's one answer. And you just keep working until you get it. And that's the way that I live my life is there's one answer. Like, I'm going to win. That's it. And right. I just keep working until it happens. So that, that's really why I chose math. Um, They actually put me in intensive reading, though, my first mm-hmm. year. They told me I was a math teacher. I was supposed to teach, like, intensive math. And, like... Probably like five days before school starts, I was a football coach, so mm-hmm. we were at the school already. They had an older coach that he said he couldn't teach reading; he could only teach, you know, intensive math. And he was, all he did was give the kids packets. He was one of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, a difference like, between an educator and a teacher, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they stuck me in intensive reading. I'm like, what? I don't know what to <laughs> do in here because. Like, I didn't take reading when I was in school. I don't even remember them offering that class. So I'm like, I don't know. What do I do? Read with them? Show them how to sound out <laughs> words? Like, what are we doing? So, What grade level was this, by the way? These are seniors. These are oh, okay. anyone from, yeah, 10th through 12th grade. That is, it was FCAT then, um, which is a test that if they don't pass that standardized test, they mm-hmm. don't graduate high school. Okay, so okay. They had, they had that state test. Um, they have changed that since then, but my first year they had that state test and I just found a teacher that she had been there for like 30 years and she was the, um, reading, uh, coach. And I said, listen, I need to come to your class and just see what you're doing. Like I I treated it like football. I always Mm -hmm. watched the best player and saw what they did and then just added Mm -hmm. my own little sauce to it. So I did the same thing in the classroom. I did the same thing she was doing, but she was boring. (laughs) <laughs> I just made it, made it fun. Okay. I mean, that's, that's just what it was. So well, I had how do so you many... make math fun? How? <clears throat> Explain. Well, this was intensive uh-huh. reading. Oh, okay, reading. So, so intensive reading, I mean, I would change my voice. We would okay. all change our voices when we're reading. We would um, 
act out the words. We would play like Pictionary type things. Mm. Um, we would just have fun with it. And, you know, we would actually break down why we're doing this. What is this going to do? Where is it going to show up in the real world? Mm. Every job requires reading. You know, we would talk about those things and then um, allowing the kids to be vulnerable and tell me that, you know, Mr. Revere, I haven't passed the FCAT since third grade. And mm. they're a senior. And so this is a test that, that they take every year. Are they had to well, take every year? Well, they were taking it in third grade, and then I believe eighth grade, and then in high school, 10th grade. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so there were kids that had been failing the whole time. And, you know, that whole no child left behind thing. And right, right. But never getting the proper um Social promotion. Uh-huh. Right. So these students, just pure motivation. Allowing mm. them to get books like I treated it like elementary school. They were getting AR points, which is accelerated reading. There were mm-hmm. kids that, you know, they read on like a fourth grade reading level. So it's like, okay, we're gonna get you a book on a fourth grade reading level. It got sixty pages in it. You know, we, we did that. And there were some kids that, you know, they barely missed passing the test, so they were getting higher level books. And just allowing everybody to understand that everybody has a different level. Right. And as long right. as you work at your level. You know, you can get an A in my class. Like, there's there's no way for you to not do well. And students really bought into that. I saw kids that, you know, had um, attendance issues really make sure they came to my class. You know, we had an A, B schedule, which was a block schedule. Mm-hmm. They would miss the other day, but they would come to my class. So <laughs> <clears throat> just those type of things. And I had so many kids pass the test the first time because they, they had a test, like, um in the winter – because they were retakers, so they would take it in the winter, and then they would get another chance in the spring twice. So um, when they took it in the winter, so many kids passed the test. I didn't have a class for two periods, so oh, they wow. had to, yeah, they had to figure out like because once you pass the test, you can go and take an elective. So they were like, "Well, you have a business degree because I didn't go to school for education. I have mm-hmm. a business management degree." So they were like, "You can teach a uh, business." class i'm like what so here i am in another class and i'm right. you know present and how to use microsoft word and excel and do presentations things like that but uh that, that was really what it was just being obviously a curveball everybody thought i was a substitute teacher i was just somebody that was there they had never seen you know a black male and i don't right. know if you saw what it looked like but i have locks like i have long locks so that was totally different. And I was young. I was only 24 going on 25 years old when I went into the classroom. So, yeah, it was it was definitely a motivation and, and kind of like an element of surprise type thing. They never knew mm-hmm. what was going to happen, so to speak. So what barriers do you think you've broken for black students or students of color by being an educator? Oh, man, when it came to my chance to teach what I was supposed to be teaching, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was it was amazing because there were students that came in, you know, not being able to understand how fractions work and understanding that you talk about fractions every day. You're like, hey, let me get half of that. You know, let me get uh, three slices of the pizza. Like, you're doing fractions. And when they start, you know, being able to relate math to the real world and they're picking out stuff like, hey, Mr. Revere, this is like when this happens in real life. Well, this happens in sports and being able to infuse sports and pop culture um, into math and allowing kids to meet them where they are and right. get their level. And then on the next side, just being that that person to give them some life skills and strategies to try and save their life. You know, it's bigger than school to me. So that's why I had to leave the classroom is because, you know, there was times I would just speak for like 30 minutes straight and then give the lesson and everybody got it you know and there's always gonna be that one kid that you know goes home and like well he just talked to us and then <laughs> gives us the lesson and you know and they, they Mom, like what is he teaching my child right so um you know my principal already knew what was going on in those situations mm-hmm. i never had a problem um especially when a parent actually came in and saw what i was doing and why i was doing mm-hmm. it and understanding you know how i I saw things, but I just realized that in the education world, there's a system, and wherever there's a system, 
it's put in place right certain people at a certain level you know you have that systematic racism that's going on mm. and that prison the that uh school to prison pipeline is real right you know i was i was going to the juvenile correctional facility and speaking coming back to the school and looking in these kids faces and knowing that some of them will end up over there if they don't get what they need from me because there's nobody else that's going to give them that same thing that I was giving them, which is a black male right. doing something positive because they come from the inner cities. I'm in Miami. So they come from the inner cities of Miami, which is, um, you know, really, really rough. You're talking about Liberty city, which is one of the roughest cities probably in America. You got Overtown, little Haiti, little Havana, like with the mm-hmm. Spanish population mixed in. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about kids that come from, nothing and uh they're just trying to you know find a quick hustle and a quick way out they're not understanding that that's how what leads to the prison um pipeline that they have to get this education because they know that if we teach it in this boring manner and if we just do what the lesson plan says it'll never save their lives so right because and i think that educators we gotta uh get creative and meet our students where, where where they're at so i'm glad that you said that and actually um i'm glad that you spoke about the school to prison pipeline because i i wanted to bring that up i was scrolling down your instagram and i actually stopped on or one post really stood out to me um you were standing in the hallway with the sign that says finish what you started right do you remember that um video yeah, that video went uh-huh. like viral. Yeah, oh, okay, I, well, great. Um, can you explain the meaning and purpose behind your sign to the listeners? So for me, um, I have my students get these little boards so that they could, well, actually, I bought the boards so that they could hold them up and show me what they were doing, that they were all, you know, uh, actually a part of the lesson and that right. they were doing their work and showing me their answers. I could see where they're struggling at what step they're having trouble with. So I just took one of the signs one day and I just wrote, you know, something encouraging on it. And I stand outside the door because I would oftentimes, kids would come up to me that are not even in my class half the time and they just want to talk. They just want to say something. Like, they know that I played football. They know that I've done certain things. So they were intrigued. So they wanted to have that one-on-one so at the same time, other people needed motivation and they're trying to ask. So I just said, let me put this sign here and I'm holding this sign, but I can talk to other people and they can still get a little message. As right. By. So I would change the message every day. And I noticed like everyone from students to assistant principals, the principal, the owner of the school, like people would come by and they want to take a picture of the sign. They, you know, oh, man, I, I can't wait to see what you put tomorrow. I'm just mm-hmm. thinking, like, I'm just trying to make sure you guys are not going crazy in the hallway. You right, know? right. Uh, you know, that situation happened where a young lady came to me and she was like, you know, I, I she really didn't get it. She was just like, why do you stand in the middle of the hallway with a sign? Like, what are you doing? And I had to, you know, break it down to her that, you know, it's my job to stand in that hallway. Like, that's what I'm supposed to do. But it's my purpose and my passion to inspire you. So I was doing both. And I'm like, the reason why I'm standing out here with this sign is so that you don't have to stand up on a bridge one day asking me for money. You know, I'll be the person with the sign so that you don't have to have a sign. So, you know, that's that's kind of the gist of what that video was about. And it's crazy. But those two young ladies that stopped and asked that question, they actually uh, messaged me on Instagram uh, last week. And they were just saying that they missed me being in the hallway and, you know, that they're about to get ready to graduate and different things like that. So, you know, you never know how impactful a moment is. And I just, you know, tried to maximize my time, so to speak, in the classroom and in the school. So when people saw me, they got something out of it. Right. I actually watched a video. Um, I think I was um, it was right before I started to become a paraprofessional for um, a charter school here in Atlanta. And they talked about how um, it was a high number, like 80 percent of the time students walk into the school or on the bus. Um, the administrators don't speak to them and how that impacts their day in a negative way. 
And so we were taught also to stand in the hallways and really just speak to children, um, be the light in their day. Even wishing them a good morning really makes a difference in their life. Um, I wanted to um, talk about how the uh, the concept of this school to prison pipeline. And um, I read this statistic. It says um, nationally, it was found that 80 percent of youth incarcerated in a state facility had been suspended and 50 percent had been expelled. Right. And so first, what do you think about um, that number or those statistics? Oh, they're true because they start building prisons according to what you're doing in third grade. Mm-hmm. So if you're in third grade acting foolish and you're getting all these referrals, they're already making a warm bed for you is what I tell the kids. Like, they're already making a bed for you. Like, you have to decide that you're going to do better or you're going to end up in that bed. So I'm, I'm sure that that's a true um, statistic that is, you know, it correlates with the students that are getting in trouble, they don't get it together, and they mm-hmm. already have a room for them. So, as an educator or a former educator, how did you actively address the school-to-prison pipeline? Um, or what do you think the school system should do to um, address this? Well, one, they should be bringing me into their schools to help them <laughs> with the culture. Uh-huh. Um, um, the big thing is the culture and mm-hmm. understanding that a lot of students do not like structure. Mm-hmm. And if you can help them be a part of that structure and create positive reinforcement and put black males in your schools and understand how to bring black males into your school to let them see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that they're not just, you know, walking down this dark road that never ends, that, you know, there is light at the end, but you got to keep working. You got to keep pushing and you know, these are some people that have done it. That exposure is so important. People focus so much on the test and, you know, okay, we got to teach highly um, effective lessons and mm-hmm. highly engaged this, this, this. But the, the moral of the story is, have you ever loved and reached those students? That's something that's not really being taught, you know, and, and you can't be taught that. You have to have that. So when these people are going in to teach our babies and they don't come from these neighborhoods, right. they don't know what it's like to come from an Alapata or come from, you know, these inner cities. They don't know what it's like to wake up and you didn't have breakfast and you're wearing your shirt from the other day. And, right. you know, you're wearing your brother's shorts or whoever's shorts and you're just trying to make it to school and your teacher's on your case because you don't have a pencil. Like, you know, I'm always trying to find out, you know, are you okay? Right. When I see that you don't have a pencil, we're going to have a different conversation. Hey, man, how you doing? Are you okay? Do you need a pencil? There's times that, you know, I, this is a situation that truly happened. There was a math um, coach, so she's supposed to be over the math department. Mm-hmm. She comes to me. Everybody would come to me for discipline. I was basically the principal. Oh, I'm know. glad you, you're you just speaking <laughs> my mind right now. Keep going. So, Keep going. Of course, being a black male, uh-huh. being in shape, they, they send these kids to me and can they just come to your class for a little bit? So in this particular situation, this young man is sent to me and I'm like, okay, why are they sending you here? And first I would finish teaching my kids what I needed to and then I would step to the side, hey, why are they sending you? And he said, she sent me here because I don't have a pencil. Mm. I said, because you don't have a pencil. I said, I got a pencil right here. Here, take the pencil, go back do your work. So he takes the pencil, he goes back, and she sends him back again. And I said, you told me she sent you here because you didn't have a pencil. I equipped you with a pencil, so what's the What's problem? the issue, right. So she comes down with him this time, and she says, no, he didn't just need a pencil. He's, a, he's not doing any work. He refuses to do his work. He's been a smart aleck. He won't tell me his mom's number, this, this, that. I said, watch this. I said, young man, call your mother. He takes his phone out. He says, she's working. I said, I didn't ask you if she's working. I said, call your mother. Until she answers the phone, I want you to keep calling her. So he called like three times. She answers the phone. I said, let me see the phone, young man. I got the phone. I said, hi, how you doing? Um, Did you know that your son, he was not equipped with a pencil today, and he chose to, you know, make some bad decisions. He's standing here with me. Um, I'm not his teacher. He was sent to me. 
but I can guarantee you that he's going to go back into his classroom and do what he's supposed to do. I just wanted you to know that he's going to make better decisions and have you speak to him for a quick moment. Boom, give him the phone. She talks to him, whatever. They get off the phone. He go back to class and he do his work. I'm like, I don't understand. What's so hard? What's so hard? But then right. I did understand she can't do what I did. Right. That right. young man re- respected me because he was like, you know what's going on. You know what's going on in my life. I didn't really know, mm-hmm. but I could relate if he was to tell me. So, you know, she was a, a much older um, Hispanic woman, uh, probably about like 60 years old, mm-hmm. not, you know, exaggerating. And this was a middle school kid in the seventh or eighth grade. And, uh, you know, she uh, eventually she said he became a student that always, you know, wanted to help and do stuff. And I'm like, the worst students in your class are the ones the you got to win. Right. They end up getting the best. So, yeah, that was the situation. So um, I'm glad that situation worked out. I kind of want to also know, oftentimes in schools, and you brought it up, black male educators are used as disciplinarians rather than educators. What is your outlook on it? Um, and some more of your experiences, do you think that they um, – respected you more as someone who can implement discipline or was it a balance for you um for me i know for a fact they looked at me as the disciplined person but um a little bit of background on me my last five years i worked for pitbull the singer rapper mm-hmm. um he had he has schools he actually just opened one in atlanta that they tried to get me to go to but mm-hmm. um Anyway, with that being said, there were people like John Travolta coming in my class, sitting there, and my lesson was so engaging, he stayed for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Maggie Johnson coming to the, the school, uh, Kevin Hart, all types of people. Uh, the Today Show did a special on me, different news stations. So they saw what I was doing in the classroom, but it was like they never capitalized on that. And that was another factor in me leaving the classroom and trying to do what I'm going to do on my own, which is creating highly engaging um, sports related um, content in math for our students. So I I know for a fact, they respected me more for the discipline than for the delivery of instruction. Mm. And so when you talk about having more black males in education and as teachers, how do they overcome that part where they're not? I mean, I think discipline, of course, is a responsibility that all administrators and teachers have. But how can black men have, I guess, faith in their position and their role to really do what they came here to do if all they're going to be doing is um, executing discipline? Um, well, in that sense, you have to make, take a stance. At one point, I had to tell teachers that no one was allowed to send their students to my class because there's a principal downstairs that, you know, that's what he's getting paid to do. Right. And you have to take a stance and, and be able to say that when it's time and also be able to, you know, know what teachers just can't handle these students and it's going to do more damage to the student than it is to, you know, let that student come to your class. So for me, it was it was finding that balance and um, also understanding that I could control what I can control, mm-hmm. you know, and, and not trying to do too much. A lot of people get caught up trying to do too much and they get burnt out. So that's what I speak right. on when I'm traveling the country to speak. I'm speaking on uh, preventing burnouts in the classroom and reaching students that are dealing with trauma. So those go hand in hand because oftentimes when teachers are dealing with students that um, have dealt with trauma, those students are controlling the classroom and projecting the trauma on everybody else in there. And, you know, now the teacher's burnt out because she's fighting this battle every Mm -hmm. single day. So just trying to get them to understand that, you know, first you got the kids got to know that you care. If, mm-hmm. if you can create that care factor, then you can have some self-care because then you could actually miss a day. You could take a personal day, you know, and you're not in fear of your classroom being destroyed and, you know, you're not being able to get the kids back refocused when you come back because you already have issues. Um, so 
that's something that I, I, I think is very, very important in having black males in those type of positions. I just feel like black males already have this um, chip on their shoulders, so to speak, in America, knowing that life is not going to be easy at all. And you're going to have to do more, be more without saying more. And that's the same thing that happens in the school system because as soon as you say anything or speak up, you become, you know, all oh, the angry black guy at work. You know, that's that's how things go. So just just kind of understanding the the dynamics of outside of the classroom being trickled down into the classroom and that systematic um, racism that you're going to have to deal with. Let me ask you another question. Um, I want to talk about like a stigma that is placed on black male educators. I want to know, have you ever changed your natural behavior when supporting students uh, like due to the fear of what your colleagues may think. And what I mean by that is uh, specifically with your girl students or your black students, because there's often a stigma where black males are afraid to become educators because of the, uh, the boundary of their girl students. I'm glad you brought that okay. up. That was, <clears throat> and for me, um, um, I guess easy on the eye, so to speak. That's another reason why okay. I was I was glad that I was married mm. during that time. So mm-hmm. I was married to six of those um those nine years, and obviously I was engaged two of those years prior. So I was only not married half of you know a year as a teacher. But mm-hmm. that really helped me, um, and also being able to set boundaries early on because students are gonna test the waters they're gonna try and see what they can say or do and you just have to you know nip stuff in the bud as soon as you know anything happens and you set the tone on day one um but at the same time having things like I never allowed girl students to come into my class when it was just a one-on-one situation like that was never happening Mm -hmm. you know my door was always open I kept my door open even while I was teaching Mm -hmm. um uh, I, I just felt like no one could say, oh, there's something going on in there without being able to say, oh, we walked by and we could see what's going on in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that made me feel more comfortable um, as far as, you know, the, the female students. Eventually, as the age gap grew, um, I stopped teaching at, at 32. So for me, once I was 32 and then I was dealing with, you know, 15, 16, 17 year old students. Now there was enough age gap where they could really feel me, you. not mm-hmm. just yeah, not just as like a big brother figure, but now more as a father figure, and mm-hmm. I could really talk to them about different things, and I felt more comfortable um being able to say, hey, you know, this whole boy stuff, you know, you need to calm down. What you're wearing is not appropriate. I wouldn't want my daughters to do that, and they were real receptive to those things. So it took some time. You know, year one, I, I don't think a black male would feel comfortable at all being in a classroom by himself with a lot of girls or being in a situation where he has to address certain um, relationship stuff with students. You know, sometimes there's girls kissing a guy in the hallway or things like that that you have to deal with. Um, as far as the, the black students, though, I mean, I didn't change on that <laughs> aspect of stuff. Yeah. I was real and relevant to them you know Mm -hmm. it came to the words that they know as far as like you know like look y'all you all think that these teachers are trying you but really you trying yourself you know and things like that like really talking to them with their lingo and getting on their level and helping them to understand like I know where you come from I know the music that you're listening to and the when I didn't know the music that they're listening to let's say there's a a black kid walking down the hallway headphones in his ear Instead of me taking his headphones, I'm going to bring him over. Hey, my man, listen, I'm sorry to do this, but you got 10 push-ups. Why? Because you got your headphones in and I don't want to have to take them. And then you're going to tell me what song you listen to and why are you <laughs> yeah. listening to them. So, you know, and kids respected me for that because I would say, oh, okay, maybe I got to check that out. How about you check out this? And I would give them like a Christian rapper that I listen to. He actually lives in uh, Atlanta, Lecrae. I would give them mm-hmm. his name. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was an exchange and kids would come by and, hey, did you listen to that song? You know, it was a cool exchange and kids respected like, oh, let me get my headphones out 
So I was teaching on the fifth floor, and everybody knew the fifth floor is where, you know, you can get push-ups or jumping jacks if you're a girl. And, you know, they did, like, a whole story on that, too. Like, no one told me I could do that. I just did it. Right. I was like, this is a sports school, so I'm not about to be writing no detentions and referrals and all of that stuff unless it's that serious. Like, if you curse or something, all right, you're bad, 25 push-ups. You know, it was it was simple. Right. It was no – and there was rarely ever a kid that was like, oh, I can't do it, you know, I don't want to do it, this or that. I'd just be like, hey, touch your nose 50 times. Right. So I just think of something, you know, really stupid for them to do, so to speak, because I wanted them to feel that what they've done, the decision they made was really dumb. So So wait, I don't want to skip over this part. You said that what helped to um I guess um or was a part of what helped to create the boundary of your um with your students was you being married. Now what about all the single black men? <laughs> Who want to become educators? What what advice would do you tell might, them? Man, put a put a little uh, one of those uh, rubber bands on, <laughs> on, your, on your finger. Um, say that you're in a serious relationship to your students on day one. Oh lord, like, it, it, you really have to do that. And okay. I'm not. Is this where high school academic. students, middle school students, yeah, elementary? Okay. Elementary, I think a black male would be fine. You know, okay. the kids are like wow, a black superhero, like, you know, like, yes. it's totally different, but we talking high school, mm. you got to have something, it, especially if you easy on the eye, like, you're going to have a situation where, you know, people just, I had a situation where kids was like, my mom think that, she, you know, oh, Lord, <laughs> they, they playing like, Cupid, can you go out with my mama uh, tonight, please? Yeah, they like, you know, and, and I was that person that, you know, I would play around with my students too, they would say certain things or ask questions that were irrelevant to what we were doing and I would just say like they would be like oh Mr. Veer are we gonna go outside I'm like no your mom's not out there or something you know oh, I would just Lord. Something there. Yeah. so doing that they all thought that I had this like thing for like moms or something so <laughs> I think I kind of set myself up in, in yeah. that situation but I had to tell that student like no I'll just be playing like you know I'm not trying to Okay. Well, uh, that's funny. Um, the last question that I had about your teaching experience before I start to wrap up our podcast, um, I kind of want to know, um, what or not what do black educators have a moral and cu- cultural obligation to teach culturally relevant education? That's my first half of the question. Why? Why do you say Absolutely. that? Because nobody else is gonna do it. When you walk in a classroom and you ask students who was the first black president and they're telling you Martin Luther King and all this other stuff. Oh. oh. And they're in high school. Yeah. And they believe that, you know, slavery, you know, just happened yesterday. Like, you know, like they just don't know any of that stuff. They don't know who invented math. They don't know who invented science. They don't know who invented all of these things. They don't know what we've done that was, you know, substantial to society today. Right. And um, exposing them to that, you should see their faces. You know, I'm a, I'm a big person on, like, Google, and I want you to do this when you get off the phone because you probably don't know the answer either, and I want to put you on the spot. You don't know my life. <laughs> you don't have all right, to put so, me on the look, spot. All right, all the listeners are listening. So who who was the first black president? Um, It was actually, so I don't, um, I think it, something james it wasn't under the u.s constitution at that time but it was a black man who was president yes okay okay see i said james john okay see you don't know my life keep going (laughs) but but yeah so so things like that just Uh being able to tell them like to google something right you mean to tell me like you could just google this because they thinking like oh i'm playing a trick and i could just make this show up on the board right like no, I'm not going to, because they would always say, oh, Google it, put it on the board. Search, oh. their, their favorite thing is search it up. I don't right. know why, but that sounds weird to me. Like, search it up. I'm like. Oh, that's what they said, search it up. Yeah, they would be like, search it up, search it up. I'm like, I want you guys to all take out your phones. You're allowed to. Right. And I want you to go on Google and type in who was the first black president. And it literally comes up. It doesn't come up, mm-hmm. Barack Obama. Right. It does not. So. For them to see that, they were like, oh, man, 
So they going back and they're telling their history teachers like <laughs> you all lied this stuff to me. in bits and pieces. Uh-huh. Though. So now the history teacher is saying, "Oh, you know, Mister Vera, he's just pulling your tail, or this, this, or that." So you know, now you got this thing with another educator, and I'm like, "Right, I'm right." You guys, this stuff to go back and you know try to win an argument. I want you to win at life, right? So I right. had to, you know, kind of break those things. And of course, some students just that was their thing to go try to bust the other yeah. child. But uh, showing them that we were kings and queens, teaching them about the Moors. And uh, one year, I'll tell you this, the school actually told me, uh, we want you to speak about Black History Month. Mm. I'm like, no, y'all don't. No, no, no. <laughs> you don't want me to, do to tell you that truth. I'm like, okay. So when I spoke, like, you could hear a pin drop. It was, mm. it was real. Because I'm telling them, like, you know, if you took all of the colors and you mix them all together, what yeah. color do you get? Right. You get black because black is the strongest color. Black is They're all derived. Right. You know, and when I broke that down and then told them, you know, everything came from black and, like, it just blew their mind. And then telling them, like, if you think we come from slaves, you know, like, you didn't look further enough. Like, we mm. come from kings and queens. Right. You know, and. And telling them, like, you know, in Egypt and these different... Some of the kids don't even know Egypt is in Africa. You know, mm-hmm. like, they have no um, geographic understanding. Um, so I just broke it down to them and then, you know, just gave them, you know, a little history lesson. And then also told them, you know, the next time you see a Black person, understand that they are beautiful, they are bold, and that they are capable of doing and being anything. So... Um, you know, that was my last year doing the Black History Month speech. But <laughs> yeah. I think it got across to them. And right. I I think the school also understood that I wasn't playing um this whole like role of um just the black guy and I'm gonna say, Oh, Dr. King had a dream and all right. Everybody knows that. But why they don't know who um Garvey is? Why don't mm-hmm. they know, you know, all of these other great people in history that have done great things or Why even the know? fact that Martin Luther King said he felt like he t- um uh uh his people he had he had his people run into a burning fire and so they don't right. tell them that um I wanted to know also um how about do you think that um do you think black educators have a moral or cultural obligation to be more than just a teacher to black students absolutely when there's so many young people growing up without fathers in their lives or people that actually love them and care about them. I think any teacher, let alone black um, teachers, has that moral responsibility to be mm. more than just a teacher. Like, your students should feel loved when they walk through that door. When mm-hmm. they cross that threshold of your classroom, they should know that there's somebody in there that cares about them. And people always say, well, why is attendance so bad in the inner cities? That's because don't nobody care about them. Right. Why you want to come to a place where don't nobody care about you? Right. I don't want to come there, you know? And then you ask the question, why there's so little um, black males in education? Black males don't want to be in another situation where people don't care about them. Right, right. They've had bad experiences, so to speak, in their educational K through 12 um, you know, learning mm-hmm. and it's like I don't want to go back to that trauma. Right. Why would I want to do that? I'd rather go do construction. And you know, that's the thought process. I mm-hmm. rather I rather go and, you know, be a street sweeper. You know, like right. they rather do a lot of other things than to be in a classroom um helping kids. So it was always um like a, a surprise when people hear that I was teaching. That was always a surprise. And then let alone that I was teaching math because obviously when right. you're a black male and you say you teach, it's like, oh, you're over discipline or you're the PE teacher. Correct. Those are the two things. So I'm like, no, I'm teaching math, geometry and algebra one. What? So, you know, that was that was something that I, I never got used to. It was just like, what, don't you guys know, like, we created this? Mm-hmm. The chemist? Like, in Africa, they came up with math and science we taught the european right we taught y'all right right (laughs) so why is it such a surprise that a black man can you know go in and educate students on math something that his ancestors created Mm. 
I got to quote that and <laughs> record that and put that in a snippet. Um, thank you so much. And so as I'm wrapping up my podcast, I actually, and you're the first person um, to be, um, to experience this. I, I'm, I'm implementing a new segment in my podcast. Um, it's called, I am what I am, but who am I? Right. And so I'm glad that you tried to put me on the spot earlier today. So I'm going I'm to do the same for you. Um, and first, do you think you know yourself? Are you aware of who you are? Yes, very so. Okay. I'm glad that you said it because I'm going to put you on the spot and we will see today. Um, so this segment is called I am what I am, but who am I? You have 60 seconds to answer three questions, right? Um, you can only answer these three questions with only one or two word responses. I will repeat the same question for about 20 seconds. And you have to give me a different response each time. Okay. I think I got it. Does that make sense? Do you need me to repeat anything? Yeah, yeah. Repeat that one more time. Okay. So you have 60 seconds to answer three questions. You can only respond. Um, so that's so there's three questions, 60 seconds. That's only um, you have 20 seconds to answer that one question. Okay. You can only answer the question with one or two word responses. You have to have a different response each time. So let me give you um, an example. Um, what color is the sky? The sky is blue. Oh, only one or two words. What color is the sky? Dark blue. What color is the sky? Dark is blue. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's a trick question. But basically, I'm going to repeat that same question for 20 seconds and you have to answer it, okay? Differently each time. Okay. All right. Let me put my timer on. The first question is hold on. Who are you? Strong. Who, old. Are, who are you? Black, proud. But really, who are you? Dad, inspire. Who are you? The goat. Who is JR? Man, legend. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to transition to the next question, but you don't have to answer all of them in two word responses. It could just be what? Oh. <laughs> well, hey, I love it, though. I'm I love on, it. I'm on two words. Okay. Um, my next question. Ready? And then um, I'm going to transition into the, um, the last, um, the third question without stopping as well. So uh, my second question is, who are you pretending to be? No one. But who are you pretending to be? Not like you. Are you sure? Who are you pretending to be? Not them. Who are you pretending to be? Not my ancestors. Who are you pretending to be? Not fake. Who are you becoming? The best. But who are you becoming? The dad. Who is Mr. Rivera? The who are you becoming? The goat. <laughs> Who are you becoming? The very best. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. <laughs> All 60 seconds. What did you think about those questions? Um, I thought it was cool. Oh. Um, I like the fact that, you know, it's making you um, think of quick responses about yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's focused on on you and a lot of times people are uncomfortable speaking about themselves especially saying something good about themselves so um definitely those questions will disturb some people's peace mm. um i love i love playing the activity with a lot of young women that i work with i think it's we have to be very intentional on understanding who we are where we been and a lot of times when you look back and understand where you've been then you it's easy to know where you're going um so i'm glad and thank you for participating in that um i want to leave it off with can you tell us um some advice right being in the position that you are in today what advice do you have for young black men who are struggling to find their purpose in the world if you're struggling to find your purpose in the world um, close your eyes and think about where you would want to be positioned 10 years from now, who you would want to affect and 
how it would affect your family and your last name if you died tomorrow. Mm. Thank you. And please tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and how they can support you on your journey. So you can find me at underscore J-R, another R-I-V-E-R-A. So it's just my name, J-R Rivera, on all platforms. Um, You can also support me by buying my book. It's on Amazon. It's What's Eating Up Your Time. Also, you can have me come and speak to your schools and your school districts and your students and uh, anything else that you would see fit for me to come in and speak to. Great. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Miranda X. That's M-A-R-O-N-D-A-X. And on um, Instagram at DR Table Talks. That is DR Table and then the word talks for exclusive content and videos of this podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today and found it to be extremely helpful to you or someone you know, you can always support me by subscribing, sharing this episodes and leaving reviews. Um, until next time. Thank you, Jr. My pleasure.